Throughout my corporate career, I've worked in different job functions across vastly different industries in different countries. I've worked in HR for a telecommunications infrastructure company, sold advertising in the packaged goods industry, been a technology headhunter, and written marketing copy for some of Canada's largest enterprises. Each change has meant that I've had to answer the same question. How are your skills and experiences transferable to what we do here? My guests on this episode are no different. Nick Stone played professional Aussie rules for six seasons before a successful career in banking took him to New York City. There, he founded Bluestone Lane, an Australian-themed coffee brand that now has 700 employees and stores across North America's largest cities. Jay Millette came from a military background before getting opportunities to work in college and professional sports. In a not-so-natural progression, Jay went into the circus, spending 13 years helping Cirque du Soleil grow into the preeminent circus brand in the world, before moving back to pro sports with the startup NHL franchise, the Vegas Golden Knights. Each change has meant both of my guests have had to answer the same question that I did. How are your skills and experiences transferable to what we do here? I'm Cody Royal, and this is Where Others Won't. Jay, how are you, my friend? Good. Happy to join you. And Nick Stone on the phone as well. How are you doing, Nick? Very well. Thanks, Cody. Good to speak with you and thanks for having me on. No, not a problem. Really keen to get you guys together and, and jam on a couple of ideas. And, you know, this episode's going to be about, you know, taking different skills and experiences and reapplying them in, you know, like disparate areas. There's a passage in my book for anyone that's read that around, you know, how this can drive innovation. And I talked about AZ Alkmaar in, in Holland who, you know, reached out to Billy Bean and they had, um, you know, a, a hockey coach and a, a volleyball coach on their, their staff. It's actually become a competitive advantage. And, and I love this idea of playing around with the same idea in sports and in business. And uh, you guys have the, the, the perfect knowledge for that. So let's start with you, Jay. You know, we met a little while ago and I know a formative part of your origin story comes from your time in the military. You're in sports now, but you know, those formative years were from the military. I guess the question, what has stayed with you from that time and how has that shaped you know, how you've approached transitions that you've had throughout your career and across industries? Well, when I went into the military, this was before I was in university. And at that point, I was a young, a young guy who had very little focus. Um, I had little options. So the military was a, was a pathway for me to be able to get on to university. And so I go into the military and I, when I came out of that, I, I came out as being structured. I came out to be focused and disciplined. I gained a lot of skill sets. I think the, the, if I had to see what is carried over from the different environments that I've been working in over the years, I think it'd probably be two things. The first would be uh, an ability for situational awareness and the second would be planning. So that notion of situational awareness, being able to go into an environment and size up that environment very quickly uh, and to see the nuances that are going to play out and be impactful in your, in your ability to be able to integrate into a new environment. And then the planning is really from a, uh, an ability to be adaptable. So I, like, I think about this notion of adaptable preparation and, and that means you're going to have plans, you're going to have contingency plans, you're going to have frameworks that, the, that you can deploy into all these different types of environments. And over the years, I've, I've structured these frameworks to be able to try to, to be prepared and then to adapt within the environment. So I have those systems that I put in place and whether that's how I'm running the process by which I run departments or my structure of recruiting and onboarding new team members into the environment, how I, the pathways by which I'm going to manage talent or how I'm going to audit 
the systems by which I audit the services that we render or even the, the, the process by which or the framework by which I'm going to transition into a new environment is even, uh, is even frameworked out. Mm-hmm. And that's actually been helpful for me in thinking about uh, how to be successful when walking into a new environment. I love that. I'm going to flick it over to Nick. You know, we, for the people that don't know you, you know, you're a, you're a footballer first, Aussie rules. We actually grew up, I think in the suburb next to each other, um, come from a similar background. You went into banking, which took you over to the States. And then you have an opportunity to open a coffee shop, which has become Bluestone Lane, a, a franchise that's, you know, international now. Um, you know, so other than kind of the business acumen and the market opportunity that you saw, like what was it from your experience that made you confident that you were the one that had the skills to, you know, bring something new to the, the hospitality and the coffee industry? Cause you know, it's kind of seen as a saturated market. So like, yeah, what did you see within yourself that, uh, that you had? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And there's probably sort of like three elements. First one was, um, you know, this obsession with customer centricity. I, I was a unfulfilled customer and, and I, I looked at the coffee culture in Australia and how personalized it was and how boutique and dominated by those independents and then reflected upon sort of the, the U S coffee culture where it was really orientated a lot more around like convenience and transactions and, and less about sort of human connection and, and thought, you know, there must be a way in which, you know, I can create something um, that has this real detailed focus on this customer centricity and providing a broader experience and making people feel really, feel really good and providing that element of escape. And, and that's, that was my sort of coffee journey in Australia, working as a banker. It was a, it's a daily ritual where we would socialize and walk down to the coffee shop and you walk in, they know your name and face and order. And mm-hmm. I think that was the first one. The second thing was all about, um, you know, I had a, a, I love brands. I love how brands and the heritage around them, the authenticity and, and what a lot of the luxury brands had created. And I think for me, I was never interested in just opening, you know, a couple of coffee shops. I was interested in building this more lifestyle, authentic lifestyle Australian brand and, and standing for a lot more than just coffee. It was really standing for the way people felt and having a broader food program and just really encapsulating what I think that Australians do really, really well around this, you know, this social daytime ritual of getting coffee or going to cafes together. And then, Thirdly, what gave me probably the most confidence was, you know, I, I transitioned from banking, uh, from football to banking, and and the, the transition had been reasonably successful. And I think it was because, you know, I love being part of teams and I love being part of high performance teams. And I thought there's probably a great space here to, to iterate in in scaling a brand um, by focusing on defining roles and then recruiting people to, to focus on executing their role and doing it with shared collective sort of visions and standards and values. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I, I love playing in team sports. I was never a terrific individual sportsman. And, and AFL is really not a, a segmented team game. A lot of the U.S. sports are, are team, you know, the team, the, the team games, but they've, they've got a lot of segmentation, like the offense and the defense, the designated hitter, the pitcher. Like a lot of them have very discrete roles and AFL is not like that. It's everyone has to be able to kick and handball and run and tackle and, and mark. And, and I thought that that's sort of mentality about like cross-functionality, riding the wave, supporting each other and dealing with sort of adversity as one unified sort of unit would, would work well in a, in a tough industry with a lot of challenges. And um, I guess that's what I've focused on thus far. And, you know, I've had a little bit of early stage success. You touched on something there that I'll, I'll revisit with you in a second. Um, Jay, I'll give you an opportunity. We never really talked about what your full kind of story was. So, you know, from from the, those early military days and the things that have been consistent, um, why don't you explain to, to the listeners, you know, where you've been subsequent to that and um, and so everyone can see kind of the, the true diversity of your background because I know it, but the, the listeners don't know it yet. Sure. Happy to talk about that pathway. The pathway was actually, I, I see it on a, on a 
spectrum. So when I went into the military, I, I was, I grew up in Daytona beach, Florida, and I was, I was kind of just this beach going uh, kid. And I went immediately, uh, I got immersed into a very authoritarian culture uh, in the military and then going into the special operations. And then when I came out of uh, the military, I went straight to school at Florida state university. And I was lucky enough to get into their sports medicine internship program. And for me, that, that environment of going from the military to Division One college sports was very familiar because in the spectrum of sports in North America, Division One college sports is pretty hierarchical and structured and authoritarian in itself. Like the athletes at that time were uh, – they were very compliant to the direction that you would give them and they would follow, you know, follow orders, if you will, in, in that environment. So, you know, I transitioning into division one college sports was, was a, a smooth transition along that authoritarian spectrum. And so I went and got my undergraduate degree and then went on for a graduate assistantship at the university of Colorado. And I was working with uh, their primarily their, their football team. And then I did some other, other sports as well in the springtime and so that that was uh, an easy transition going from division 1 college sport to division 1 and then i had probably my biggest transition that I was completely unprepared for, which was I got hired, I uh, hadn't even finished my master's degree, and I got hired as a head athletic trainer in Major League Soccer in their inaugural season in 1996. And for now, where I am in my career, I almost look back at that decision of them hiring me and think, wow, that's just crazy that they hired me, because ultimately, that was I, was, I don't believe in retrospect that I was uh, prepared at all. And the biggest area that I saw I was not prepared, and I learned this very fast was that going from the uh, the authoritarian environment of of the uh, college sports to now working with professional athletes. You are going to tell a professional athlete what they're going to do. You can suggest, you can recommend, you can guide. You have to pull that influence lever so much more than the directive lever. And it took me a while to 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 learn that, right? Like, well, actually, it didn't take. A, it, it took a a few stepping on a few landmines with a few professional uh, athletes, where I realized like this has to shift because the profession professional athlete is so much more different, and the power structure within the, the professional sports is so so different. So that that transition was probably one of the the most abrupt transitions I had ever made going into major league soccer, and then I go further along that that spectrum i end up in the circus now it when now i look at that full spectrum so on one end is military special operations which is as authoritarian as i can imagine now i'm in the circus if you take that across that spectrum i cannot think of a more anarchical environment where rules and policies are openly rejected and that that was that actually was a fascinating experience and i was lucky that over my pathway that I kind of got to, to work myself uh, towards being uh, in this environment that was a lot more loose and you had to have this, this collective agreement and power sharing that occurred within the, not only the professional athletes, but also within the staff itself. So uh, then I ended up and I have a long stint that I'm working with Cirque du Soleil and I was blessed because what a, what a wonderful organization that was to work with because it was a, organization that embraced innovation that embraced failure like the idea to fail is very comfortable so I got to try all kinds of crazy ideas and employing different tactics and services and if it didn't work you just fail fast and move on and I learned a lot of skill sets but that but what I really learned was that ability to to um to adapt to be adaptable because you can think of the uh, think of the circus like a league where you might have 24, 25 teams, but ultimately each team, which is a show within Cirque du Soleil, has its own subculture. Right. So when you go to a, a show and say it's a, it's a show that's traveling through Europe, when you arrive on that show and you're from headquarters and it's like you're from the league, you're not openly accepted. You have to integrate yourself into that that team and integrate yourself into the subculture of that show. So I, I quickly learned the power to tran like transfer uh, your skill sets and integrate yourself in because you can quickly be uh, – uh, rejected. They would have a, a nickname for the, the people who worked at headquarters. They called them Jaffos. And that's just another 
uh, effing uh, observer. And that was really how you were, you were treated and you had to, you had to quickly uh, build trust. You had to quickly understand the dynamics within the show and try to find a connection and help them understand that it's about them and their context and their needs and their interests and trying to support them. And, and learning those skill sets was a, a fantastic opportunity. And then after being with, uh, with Cirque du Soleil for 13 years, I, I got to transition back into professional sports. And now I'm with the uh, Vegas Golden Knights. And I started with the inaugural year uh, for the club. So that transition actually was, was actually was pretty uh, a pretty smooth transition because everything started from the beginning. It's a rare opportunity that you can go into a professional sport and start with no history, no baggage, and have that opportunity to be able to create something uh, with with a design in mind. And and so that that was actually a pretty interesting transition, and I'm enjoying that experience currently. You've hit on a couple of things that I want to re- revisit with you as well, but you've, you, so far you've both talked about recruiting. So I want to skew there. You know, this is a show about leadership and building teams and you both really uh, poignantly touched on um, some things that I want to dive into. So Nick, let's kind of riff off what Jay was talking about there. You know, you've had a, a similar experience with building out a brand like you talked about, but ultimately, you know, kind of a franchise model where, you know, it's all around customer experience and even employee experience for you and, and building out those teams so that they can uh, pass that on to your customers. And, and I've experienced your brand in a couple of different locations um, in Toronto and, and New York and, uh, and the consistency is really key. So I guess, you know, going from that original idea to now having to build out teams, you know, what did that process look like for you? Because uh, we, we tend to think of, Starbucks and we've had, you know, Howard Behar on the show before and, and talked about this in terms of, you know, going to their employees first and educating them and preparing them so that they can um, pass it on to the customers. So, yeah, what did that look like for you in terms of turning it from a vision in your head into a reality? It's, it's a fascinating question. I think it's, it's multifaceted. Um, but, you know, essentially... We had a great point of reference being the coffee culture that I was used to in particularly Melbourne, Australia. Right. And I guess we constantly, and I constantly referred back to the way I felt as a customer because I had no experience or formal training in hospitality. So it, it had to be so customer centric. Uh, so I think when we developed a lot of the standards and uh, the steps of service and the the values and the principles of the company, it was really honed with that lens that um, this is the way it's sort of done down, down under. This is the way I felt. This is the way it tasted. This is how long it took. And then I think once we had those sort of framed expectations and the value proposition, then you start developing the, the standards that enable you to scale. And, um, you know, I think that what helped us a lot is we, we, we had one voice and I was really prescriptive about the way that it was meant to be. And, you know, I think that also means that you, you lose a lot of the ambiguity because there's just one person driving what the vision is and the way and the purpose of the company and the way people are meant to feel and then, you know, I think that that becomes, you know, quite clear around execution. And then, you know, we spend so much time about orientating and you know, building this congruent team where we celebrated success, that we had fun, that we worked hard, that we wanted to achieve great results, that we wanted to make people feel good. And, and a big part of that is recruiting the right people that have the right values. And I didn't really look at recruiting people with hospitality experience. I looked at recruiting people into the team and it's the same principles that apply today that that like working with other people and making other people feel good and uh, I think that that's the essential component to the type of hospitality that we want to provide and um, that need and one of our core four but you know we have four values and one of the values is to be a happiness ambassador and I do think that um, in what we what we provide and now to sort of over 12,000 sort of people a day 
is the ability to really influence how they're feeling about their morning or their afternoon. And that's a quite a powerful and, and uh, you know, uh, inspiring thing. And, you know, I think we constantly sort of reinforce that we're all together in one team, we're all teammates. And, uh, you know, that's our role and purpose to provide people this escape and make them feel good. And let's do it in a way that we take great pride in building a premium brand. And, and uh, you know, I think there's nothing, nothing like role modeling from the front and, you know, living, living and breathing it. And, uh, you know, a lot of it's about like continuous reinforcement and having those brands sort of disciples within the organization and and ensuring that they're permeating the messaging and that we're really consistent and, and i think that's that's helped us so much in trying to be able to scale and keep the elements that need to be uniform and then acknowledging that some things are going to be more specialized and unique and mm-hmm. uh you know that's what we've certainly focused on in the way the stores look and and you know the personalities of our staff we don't want them to be robots we don't want them just to be uh you know like a typical um quick service restaurant we want them to have genuine relationships with their locals and uh you know to invest in that so that we we can service them and you know and you know provide great sort of coffee and food and service every single day and jay i'm going to ask you a similar question you know we you've talked about your landscape and having diversified teams with the circus and you're trying to build out your teams. You've had the scenario that you mentioned, you know, feeling not prepared going into major league soccer, which is a startup league with startup teams. And then, and then even more recently, you know, a a startup franchise within an established league. So as you're building out these teams, how do you approach it? And what have you learned over the years from your own experiences, you know, going back to, that feeling of being not prepared. Yeah. How do you build out your teams and then how do you potentially find that kid that was you that, that isn't prepared, but that you want to put your trust in? Well, over the years when I was working at Cirque du Soleil, I would think that in the sports medicine, sports performance realm, I've probably been blessed to do more recruiting than 99% of, of people in this field, just because of the sheer uh, size and volume of the staff uh, and the number of shows that, that we had to support. Uh, so I had an opportunity to build a rhythm. And then within that rhythm of recruiting, I actually started to have pillars. And the three pillars by which I recruited uh, had this process. And that process became a three-step process. So it was it's a cumbersome recruitment process that you would go through with me. And I think if you ask my staff with the Golden Knights, they, they would agree uh, um, because it takes a long time because I think that I want to try to familiarize myself with with uh, people as much as possible. But it's a three-step process, and that's looking at a connection, a capacity, and character of, uh, of uh, someone who's a potential future teammate. And so for me, I start with connection, and connection for me is just are we – at least facing in the same direction together in regards to the way that we believe about our industry. Like, do we see similar philosophies and values and mission that we should be uh, approaching this unique profession in? And what I don't need us to to be exactly aligned. Uh, It's similar to what Nick said. I don't need robots. I don't need everybody to believe exactly what I believe, but we need it to at least be facing in the same direction because if we are, if we're facing in the same direction together, now I know that we can go forward together and help guide each other on where we want to go as a, as a team. So I work deeply in that, trying to understand what are the, the, the grounding philosophies of the people that, that, that I'm interviewing. And I, I spend a lot of time, that first interview is very casual. It's very open. Uh, and, and the people get a lot, of time and opportunity to share their beliefs. So then I look at, okay, are we facing in the same direction? If we are, we go on to the next step. And that's, that's the capacity, right? This is where I want to know, do you have the technical horsepower to be able to deliver the services at an elite level? And that's typically where we can start to weed out candidates, right? And, and in that, the, the, kind of the disposition and energy of that interview, the second step is very different. This becomes very experiential. And I ask one question over and over and over again. And that question is why? 
And the reason I ask why is because I think the key uh, is in when we're, we're hiring clinical staff and technical staff in, in the sports medicine, sports performance, sports science world is that what differentiates good from great is reasoning. If you understand why you do what you do, then you can replicate excellence. But if you don't genuinely hold that capacity to be introspective, to analyze yourself and your actions and your outcomes and know why you're doing what you're doing, you're not going to be able to consistently deliver excellent services to professional athletes. So I ask uh, why a lot. And also the benefit for me uh, being able to ask why a lot is when I look at staff and I onboard them, if I know what they do, I can support them and I can, I can try to help them be successful. But if I understand why they do what they do, if I understand how they think about their work, now I have the opportunity to elevate them as a teammate. And that differentiation of what and why is super important when you want to grow and professionally develop your staff. And then uh, I look at character and the character is, is trying to understand who they are as a person, because I think that there are some universal traits that I think kind of cut across a lot of our environments. And then I think there's some contextual traits that matter. So like when I was at, uh, at Cirque du Soleil, I needed to, to try to find people who demonstrated a strong adaptability. They were self-reliant, almost worldly in nature. Like if I took someone and I plucked them out of, out of a, an experience where they haven't done any international travel, they've worked with one socioeconomic group or only one group of athletes. And now I said, here you go uh, by yourself, look after 45 athletes and you're going to travel through Southeast Asia. It's not just the tech, it's not typically not going to be the technical area where they're going to break down or need a lot of, of support. It's going to be that ability to be self-reliant and worldly and adaptable. And so trying to, to uh, structure the interview process that looks at some of those characteristics. Now I've transi transitioned to hockey and some of the traits that I looked for uh, that I really emphasized in the recruitment process was humility, generosity curiosity like these were things i really wanted to see in my future staff that, that i was developing and then there's just things that i think for me this and it's my own opinion but things that i think cut across almost all of the different environments i like i, I want to know are you a critical thinker i think that that's really important and no matter what environment that, that you're going to um you know transition into are you communicating or can you influence because most likely we're not going to, to be the, the, the decision makers? Are you introspective? Do you spend time thinking about yourself? Are you forward thinking, right? Can you stand on your tiptoes, look down the road and, and anticipate what's coming next? That's a difficult skill set. And then, and then I also want to find a balance in people. Are you principled in your work but not dogmatic? Right. And finding that balance, because I also want you to be open minded. So finding that that appropriate balance between being principled and open minded, that's a kind of a hard balance to find in some people. So, I mean, that that trinity of looking at, at, a, at, at potential teammates and looking at connection, capacity and character over the years, that's been the process that I've developed. And it's a lot. It takes a lot of time, but it's a huge uh, uh, return on investment because more often than not, you make good casting choices. Yes, I've made miscasts in the past, but I can tell you now, like with the Golden Knights, that process paid off because the team that I developed and the spirit of the team that we have is exceptional. And I, and I think a big part of it being exceptional was that it had a very thorough process behind the recruitment. I like how deliberate you are with that. And the reason I say that is because I feel like uh, some organizations can pride themselves on just having a slow process just for the sake of it. But I like the, the intention with which you've done it. And obviously connection, capacity, character is fantastic, you know, rolls off the tongue and easy to remember. And it's a modern recruiting process. I'll open it up. Do you guys have questions for each other? I am super fascinated with something that, that you talked about, uh, which is, uh, and if I heard you right, was that when you were first starting out, you 
you, you established a vision and, and you, you had one voice. And I was thinking about when I came into uh, the Golden Knights, I, I thought, do I, in the beginning, before I even onboarded my first staff, do I, do I, do I create in silo uh, my mission, my vision, the values by which we're going to orient ourselves? Do I create, start to try to create a DNA for my team and then deploy that and onboard people into that DNA? Or do I bring them in and then, uh, and then invite them into the process of the creation? And I chose to do the latter just because I felt that I wanted to better understand the culture of hockey. And so what I'm interested in is when you transitioned from banking into the coffee world and you took the decision that you were going to kind of spearhead the creating your DNA, did you think about – uh, like, did you intentionally sit and think of the pros and cons? Cause I weighed that, that heavily. And I still don't know if I've taken the right decision because we're still in the process of say, for example, we're creating our vision, like, and we're working through that. We have, we have our philosophies and we have our mission, but we are trying to create our vision together and it's taking time. And I, so I don't know if I took the right decision, but it, but now that I'm on that pathway with my team, I'm enjoying the process with them. So how did you work through that that decision when you first created your company? It's a, it's a terrific question, Jay. I think I think when you're the founder and it's your idea, I think there's a lot of merit in just being really prescriptive and um, in in pretty measured about what you want to be, what your value proposition is, why you would want to be part of this journey, how we're going to make a difference to our customer is. And I think it's really, really important because as you grow in a human capital intensive business like mine, like you have to hire a lot, a lot of people and you're dealing with um, a lot of teammates that, are you know hospitality orientated, which is really about sort of making other sort of humans feel good and satisfied. It's not the most technically proficient um, of of occupation, and you know you you constantly need a lot of sort of people that have general skills. and And I think if you're going to be in that space and you're going to hire a lot of people, then I think do think you need to be pretty strong with what the company stands for and the visions and who we want to be. I think over time, certainly when you build out like a more management team and an executive team, moving towards more collaborative uh, value sort of creation and mission statement and um, slightly adjusting more or rapidly, you know, significantly adjusting the way you want to do things and, and what you stand for and, and how you can support your teammates. Um, you know, becomes a lot more um, social and, and congenial. So I, I think it also, yeah, it just really depends on the life cycle. But for me, there wasn't a lot of relativity early on because I talk about like the Australian coffee culture and, you know, what does that mean? Well, most people sort of wouldn't have any idea. And, and it was really only the Australians that I could probably say, you know, what's, why is Australian coffee culture different from, us and like cody you could probably sort of summarize it you know mm-hmm. in four things that come to your head that are probably consistent with what a lot of other aussies and particularly aussie expats would would would, would talk about a list uh, but it's very unfamiliar in a foreign place like the us and so that's why i was, I was really really strict around no this is what it's going to be it's going to have this element and it's going to it's going this is how we're going to treat our locals and this is the way that the beverages are going to taste and this is where the food is and this is our ethos around health and lifestyle orientation and this is the way the service model should be and this is the way the store aesthetic should be and you know i think i think it's i think it's really really important in building a brand that you just have some pillars that you don't mess with and part of building a brand is in our space is operating really really well uh, and you know that drives your reputation and word of mouth, and and ultimately that that drives the perception in someone's mind that they want to have this, they want to invest in it, and they want to go regularly, and they want to have this emotional connection, and they see you differently from what, frankly, is a pretty commoditized offering. Coffee is a commoditized product and served in a whole variety of different ways, but um, you know we had to we had to cut through that noise and. 
you know, I, I, that's what we did. Um, but right now it's a lot more socialized and collaborative. But, you know, ultimately I think the founder always going to sort of, so, so, you know, set that strategic direction, the way that the brand should stand and the way it should make people feel and what are the sort of the real ethos of the company. I think if you lose that, then there's not that sort of one um, voice of, of reason or voice of truth that, you know, is also a sense of co- provides a lot of confidence to the team that they know that, that they're executing along what the founder um, imagines should be. But uh, one thing I had actually for you, Jay, is your background extremely, you know, comprehensive and successful. Um, congratulations. And I think one of the things that I, I think is quite fascinating, and this is something that I, I, I've struggled with, is you've come from sort of elite military service with a lot of high performance orientated self-starter orientated people then you moved into you know elite sports both with you know the preeminent circus group on the planet and then you know now and then you know with a professional a soccer in the soccer business and now with a professional sort of hockey team and you've worked with a lot of individuals who are who are at the top of their class and you know i came from being a professional athlete at you know, 17 finished at sort of 23, 24 after six seasons going into, um, you know, sort of corporate finance investment banking where, uh, you know, most people there are, you know, come through the graduate program where they're, you know, they're pretty self-selected and they're, and they've been extremely hardworking and dedicated to their craft and, and then to work in the environment and, and rise through the ranks reasonably quickly that I was able to achieve. How, how sort of, um, is it, do you feel like you're equipped to be able to transfer a lot of these like high performance skills to like broader parts of, of life and different other industries? Because that's one thing that I've found has been so challenging with speaking to now that we have 700 employees is that not everyone who works for Bluestone um, is as motivated as, as some other individuals or, or me. And, and that's actually sort of part of life. And I, I still sometimes struggle to, um, communicate in a way that maybe inspires the masses that I, maybe my, my style and my directive is more applicable to, you know, what I've learned through professional sports and, and sort of, and sort of a more elite business. But have you got any thoughts around that? One of the lessons I learned early on was I have a, like my motor to go is very high, right? I can, I can, I can rev my RPMs for a very long period of time. And I can, I, and I used to think that I'm going to outwork anybody. And that worked really well when I was trying to make straight A's and do a full-time internship. And then like really like driving hard to, to progress my career. And then when people started working for me, what I realized was not everybody's motor is going to go at the same intensity and duration that mine's going to go and trying to understand how can I get the most out of people for what their, what their, their capacities are. And so I used to want all my staff to run at the same speed uh, that I would go. And I realized that that just wasn't going, going to be sustainable because I was going to burn through good employees. Uh, so I started to try to, to leverage people's strengths and trying to find ways that I could get the most out of them for what they could deliver. And there's life, right? Like, I, I mean, I don't, I don't have kids. I've always been very focused on, on career. So my ability to dedicate to my career is, might be at a different level than, than people that I onboard into my teams. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not still driving excellence, but I'm just trying to position people for success within where their parameters are and what their limitations are and understand their, their limitations. Now, if the standard, if somebody can drive a high level of standard with certain uh, limitations, I'm very comfortable with that. But if the standard's not high, then, then that's just not going to work. And I think that, that that ability to establish what the cultural expectation of the standard is is really critical to, for not only the, the organizational success, but for each, each person's individual success. Because people at some intuitive level know whether they're meeting the standard or not. And then I think it's just about just honest conversations. And over the years, I've gotten very good at having uncomfortable safe conversations with people about expectations of standards and then and then either working a plan to elevate 
that person towards the standard if they, they genuinely want to achieve it, but they're having barriers to achievement or whether they just understand that they're not committed to the standard. And then having that very, very honest and sometimes painful discussion with the staff. I think it's quite fascinating what you learn from being part of like elite organizations and the way that people innovate and how that they how dedicated and how sort of lateral thinking they will be to try and drive performance because it's just at the top level, it's so hard to get, you know, a 5% gain because they're already to even make your way to that, to that, um, to that professional standard or the elite level, it's it's that the, you know ten thousand hours since a, a, a very young child of practice and routine and training and and all the pathway programs and I think once you once you do make it to the top level, reinforcing and having sort of someone at the top sort of reinforcing what you're looking for and the ways that you, you should get about it. Is, is quite um is quite unusual versus you know, most of society, but and then you know getting getting other people on board is um you know is essential to get the congruency to move beyond just like an individual starter to a to a you know a high performing team. I I think our profiles are very interesting because my whole professional career has been dedicated to supporting the professional athlete and you've been a professional athlete. So you've had lots of support staff through your, through your career, right? As an athlete, a lot of people think that you make at the pro level, you make gains on the margins. It's the 1%. And I actually, I reject that rejects a big word, but I reject that that notion because I think it's the I think it's that big middle uh, first standard deviation where the biggest change can occur and I think that that when you move out to the like the two standard deviations and that's where people think they're going to really really find innovation and and, and ability to 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 make change I, I think that it misses the point about the athlete and maybe there's something that transfers to the customer as well but it's this idea that when if an athlete feels deeply, deeply cared about as an individual, if an athlete knows that, that you're fully dedicated to their well-being, I think that goes 10 times further than if I've worked some very, very uh, sophisticated algorithm in sports science to try to make a half a 1% increase in physical performance. Like I, I think that there's something there that gets genuinely missed by this profession which is are you really really looking after the human first and not the performance and i think if you start with the human and then you go to the performance i think that, that that's where big wins get missed by a lot of a lot of my peers in the industry it's human performance start with the human and i know that sounds like a catchphrase but man i just believe it uh and i don't know if you ever sense that as an athlete there's so many things that you gain from physically and mentally pushing your limits as, as an athlete that you, that the skills gained are so transferable to society. And like, if I think about Bluestone Lane, like why in an industry that I have no experience, a complete outsider that we've been able to sort of achieve some, some, you know, early stage success is you, you, you have to be so disciplined and you have to be so, um, relentless and innovative in in trying to remain at the top because and or trying to find your way to the top and each out those that, that extra sort of performance when it's so competitive and I think that you, you learn to deal with things at such a young age around sort of resilience and adversity and the ability to be part of a congruent team that you can apply it to so many walks of life and and with Bluestone like that's that's what we've what we've ingrained that there are going to be times where we're going to, we won't have the answers. There's going to be times when things go really wrong. There's also going to be moments of euphoria that we've got to celebrate and rally around. But, you know, I think dealing with the, the adversity and dealing with the volatility in startups or in a small business has been such, you know, it helps so greatly by my shaping as an athlete and, and the, and the comfort that comes from, 
hard work and and seeing uh, the results that you benefit, you know, you can gain from making some of those ultimate sacrifices. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a unique perspective. And I think it's one thing that is extremely inspiring when you hear from sort of different athletes or different sort of professionals in the top of the game about the, the, the sacrifices they'll make and, the, and, you know, the fact that it's not linear, that everyone has, has moments of challenge and, you know, you've got to persist and you need to remain sort of inquisitive and, and just get through it. Yeah. I, I've had so many conversations with athletes that are transitioning recently. And it's funny cause I think it's, it's often misapplied. Like people kind of, let's just call it the corporate world kind of looks at former athletes and sees what you talked about, the discipline and the, the, the adversity and the, the ability to bounce back and, and kind of, you know, funnels them into like a sales role. We just kind of always defer to that. You know how to hit targets because you're an athlete. But what you just described there, I think, is, is more holistically the picture. There's, there's things on top of that, like the, the, the team dynamics and the ability to look at a situation and try and create sustained success out of it rather than, uh, you know, momentary success. Athletes kind of get all bundled together and just shoved into one place. Whereas, you know, I'm, I've kind of half tried to make it a, a bit of a mission of mine to, you know, disagree with that idea and say, let's, let's actually go and like Jay said, let's deal with the human first. Cause I, I think there's more that the athlete population in general can offer to the greater society. And it, it's kind of along the lines of what you were talking about there, Nick. My question to you, Nick is, you know, you showed some real humility there in admitting that, you know, some of the team might not be motivated by you and your style of communication and, and that it's, you know, something that, that you've struggled with. So firstly, thank you for that. But then my question is, where do you go to now for your own development? Again, talking about something that I think athletes are, are quite good at, you know, who are you learning from? You know, how much content are you able to take in or do you, have you set up a, uh, a network for yourself to be able to bounce ideas around, you know, how do you deal with that given, uh, you know, the strains on your time and, and all of the things that are swirling around in your world at the moment? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think I'm, I'm a little bit fortuitous in the sense that one, I'm, I do really love meeting people and I love listening to people's journeys and stories. Um, and from a social perspective, that's what I've always enjoyed. So that sort of, so that natural sort of networking orientation has really sort of helped and combined with the fact that, and that thirst for knowledge and combined with the fact that like, I think I'm reasonably self-aware and, and humble. Like I, I, I love, I love learning and finding out things that I'm happy to bear it all and, and be an open book and share all the, the, the challenges we're facing and, and the areas where we're seeing success. And um, you know, as an example, in this space, I've tried to meet as many professionals in the, in the hospitality um, industry as I can. And I've also tried to meet as many sort of startup founders that have been scaling or growing very quickly as I can just to listen and learn and ask questions and provoke. Uh, in full confession, I was late to, to this call um, <laughs> because I had the opportunity um, to to spend two hours with the CEO uh, Brett of of Carver, and and Carver um, is you know a fast casual concept uh, that uh, has been around for about ten years, and you know they've they've grown in a transformative way, and they're sort of quite similar to in addition to sort of sweet green that they're the two faces of this sort of fast casual revolution in the U S and, um, they just made a huge acquisition, um, for a, for a, a younger, smaller company to buy a, um, a big sort of elephant in being this listed company Zoe's kitchen where they paid $300 million in cash to buy you know, 330 restaurants. So, um, they're now, you know, nearly 400, uh, restaurants if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And, and it was just wonderful just to sit there and talk about all the challenges and the things I'm seeing and, and the way I'm reorientating the strategy and, and listen with, with 
as much objectivity as possible and just sort of embrace it. And I think that's, I think that's just essential. I, I don't know many founders that, that just do it all alone. Like, and, I, and if, they do, if they currently are, then I encourage them not to carry that burden. Like, I think you need, to, you need to trust that there's people out there who really, really believe in what you're doing and they want you to succeed and they believe in the values that you uphold as a person, as a leader, and they want to help. And I think that I've been so blessed with the fortune of having so many people who are invested in in me as a person and believers in what we're trying to do that have wanted to to provide their feedback and and ask me questions and and be an ear that that has really provided a, like a lot of comfort because there's an incredible amount of um of lonely days as a founder of a startup and and but also as a CEO or even like in any position where you're, you're running a team yeah. or, and particularly if you're running an elite team where there's so much pressure to constantly improve and, and ultimately in a lot of cases win, you have to win. And, you know, it might not be this week or it might not be this year, but like over time you have to improve and you have to win. Otherwise you will not remain in the lead organization. So certainly speaking to others and, and getting that counsel has made the journey a lot more um, palatable than, you know, just uh, not asking for help and not asking just to bounce some ideas off. And, you know, I'm sure that, Jay, that you've had plenty of times where, you know, you're the top of your game and in your division and you just need to speak to someone to express, you know, the results you're seeing or whether the, the conditioning or the orientation you're putting in place is, is you feel right. Absolutely. Not working in... In, in a silo and having blinders on and and I think having over self-reliance I think that that I mean I believe in self-reliance but if you're overtly there I think that you're you eventually you'll 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 set yourself up to to be narrow from the first conversations you and I had Jay you know I, that curiosity from you came across and I'm from an Aussie rules background. So even, you know, you and I standing in one of the theaters in Las Vegas talking about Aussie rules and how my team is set up, you know, I love that conversation and and your curiosity and your, your desire to learn really came across. We'll start to wind up on this, not a personal question, but just something away from your workplace. We'll start with you, Nick, like outside of Bluestone, outside of wanting to scale a, a company, you know, what's, intellectually stimulating you at the moment are you learning about you know the history of pianos or matchbox cars or like what is there something that you've found where you're like oh this is really cool and you you just kind of picked it up on on the side um i i think you know i've i've just <laughs> i've just had my second child only 10 days ago so i'm pretty uh focused on trying to understand about how to how to juggle sort of work-life balance and and what i want to uh, the, the dad I want to be and partner and also like, you know, the, the needs I have to, as a, as part of this, this larger family and, and also grow a business that is doubling you know, every year. Um, but, you know, outside of that, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm certainly like very, I, I'm just, I love learning. I love, you know, I've got this real thirst for knowledge on a whole variety of different sort of areas. And, um, you know, for me, I think the biggest thing is that I'm really interested in is is finding this balance between like being a really amazing leader, um, being very present and trying to be my best in, in professional sort of circumstances, but also like meet the obligations that and and the needs that I want as a as a as a member of a family. And uh, you know, I I'm doing a lot of investment into understanding that and, mm. you know, finding ways in which I can improve my routines and like my sacrifices. And, and like a huge part of it is, is, as you mentioned before about like just being more disciplined about saying no, like, no, I can't meet that person. No, I can't um, be pitched that product. No, I can't take that meeting right now. I, I have to sort of prioritize and because I don't think it's been one of my biggest strengths because, you know, when you're in the court of, caught up in the, in the velocity, high velocity of growing something and the euphoria, like it's easy just to be 
sidetracked and then, you know, become a bit imbalanced. And, you know, that's something that I really, um, I'm, I'm, you know, constantly striving to improve on. And, and I think it's really important for performance. Like when I'm too far, when I'm working, you know, 18 hours a day, you know, I'm not at my best. I, I just can't be. But, you know, if I'm working hard but, but still have time for the things that I need to be my best, exercise and diet and just some clear thinking, uh, you know, normally I'm, I'm a more calm and, um, and, and clear leader and, and, you know, better husband and father. I love testing things out around that too. It's It's been really interesting. Again, coming from that sports environment where you are a little bit more potentially self-aware and in tune with your body. Um, I, I've been going through the same process, not a father yet, but headed down that track and, and yeah, it's, uh, I'm on that journey with you. So maybe we can exchange notes on that. Uh, Jay, what about you? What away from your world? Where are you learning at the moment? When I dedicate my time to, to learning, I have four buckets that I see that I dedicate my time. Three out of four are all about professional life. So there's spending time in sports medicine, spending time in sports performance and sports science, and then spending time learning about leadership and management. And then that fourth bucket, I find myself recently with like a strange amalgamation of things that interest me that probably on the surface are extraordinarily boring to most other people. But like I'm fascinated with mid-century modern architecture. So if I'm in that one quarter of my time, that's kind of my guilty pleasure. That's not being focused at trying to be better at my profession. Like I, I'm looking at, at architectural uh magazines and i just really enjoy uh the energy and the feel that that architecture makes me have inside and that's kind of that mid-century modern leaning is how we've created our our home in las vegas we're blessed enough to have one of these old funky houses in downtown uh las vegas so that that's a, a area like a guilty pleasure and the other thing that, that recently I would say in about the last two years that, that's pulled my interest is I'm fascinated about what's happening in the global societies right now with the, the movements towards populism and then how that reflects so closely on the economic scale to what happened in the, it happened in the 1930s. And like, I just find this uh, mirroring of, of what's happening economically and politically and what's happened in the past. Just fascinating and both scary at the same time. So <laughs> I think maybe my knowledge consumption is part of trying to solve some low-grade anxieties. I don't know. But I do find, uh, even though it's extraordinarily boring, I find it uh, extraordinarily interesting at the same time. So that's my one-quarter bucket of guilty pleasure seem to be split in those two areas lately. We're an interesting species to observe at the moment, aren't we? Yeah, there was a lot of uh, sad and uh, depressed times in the 1930s, so hopefully <laughs> not all of those come to roost, eh? Um, Mark was a lot of grey, that, that, that era. And, um, you know, yeah, hopefully, hopefully, given we've had a, a pretty unsettled sort of political and macro environment for the last few years in particular, that you know, there's some, there's some stability ahead, but, um, you know, it, it's going to be obviously like extremely volatile year next year uh, with the election year. And, um, yeah, it's going to be, I think that's, you know, that's something that's undeniable. I think the world is, I think the amount of people that are just fascinated about, um, uh, you know, the, whether it's the, the trade um, war that's going on with between the US and China and, you know, President Trump's, uh, some of his policies, um, and certainly, you know, the Brexit uh, and, you know, the new, prime, the new prime minister in the UK um, and then just, you know, what the, the rise of China and this new world dominance. Yeah, it's, it's just absolutely fascinating. And I think everyone's sort of on the edge of their seat seeing how it's all going to sort of, shape out and, and, and play out. And then obviously with the, the rise of the digital society and how much that's transforming the way people work and engage and, and you know, live their life. It's going to be interesting to watch, isn't it? And play a part of as well. Gents, thank you so much for your time. I hope you guys can get together. I know, Jay, uh, you're going to go to a Bluestone at your earliest convenience. I hope when you guys play in New York City, Nick, you can get along to a game. For the people that are following along that, that maybe want to follow along with what you guys are doing, 
opportunity for you know, social media or websites or, or whatever you want. So Nick, where can people follow along with you? Yeah, sure. So certainly like, you know, our website, www.bluestonelane.com. Um, my LinkedIn, um, Nicholas Stone, if you, if you look up, search for Nicholas Stone, Bluestone Lane, it'll come up. And then our Instagram is probably the, the one, a social media channel for Bluestone that has the, the most sort of resonance. And um, we've got 70,000 followers and that's just Bluestone Lane. So, yeah, that's it. And you're in Toronto now? Yeah, we've got two stores in Toronto and hopefully you know, we can build it out to say five stores within the next next 12 months so uh yeah it's 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 our first international and um we opened our first license store ever also in the cayman Islands. so yeah we've got some interesting stuff um so yeah it's it's um it's it's good well i've converted all my canadian mates so there's a, a good following there and um i'm certain you'll get to to five here mate jay same question to you mate where can people follow along with you and the, the golden knights and and everything that you've got going on so I have a, a relatively small digital footprint and I would say that LinkedIn is probably the area that I, I invest most time digitally. So you can find me at Jay Millette on LinkedIn if anyone wants to reach out to me. Awesome lads. Thank you so much. You can't see my piece of paper, but it's full of red sketchings and, and words and, and phrases that you both said. And it's been an absolute pleasure and, and I'm sure everyone has learned an absolute ton from both of you. So thank you for that.